0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Pat Crawford, director of the Robert and Veronica Atkins Center for Weight and Health, an adjunct professor in the School of Public Health and the Department of Nutrition Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. Well known for her work on nutrition and public policy, Dr. Crawford has been one of the leading figures on the field in issues such as school nutrition, menu labeling, and the like. So, Pat, welcome to Yale.
0: Thank you, Kelly. I'm very happy to be here.
1: So let's talk about schools and nutrition. This is an area in which you have probably as much experience as anybody in the country, and they've really done ground, groundbreaking work. If we think about the nutrition landscape in the schools, it, it evolved to a much different picture than I think back when I was a boy, where you know it was basically school lunch and that was about it. There weren't really vending machines. Can you give us sort of a, a picture for the people who haven't been in a school lately, what the school nutrition landscape evolved to become?
0: Oh, sure. You know, this. Uh, my interest in it started when I was working on a longitudinal study and I was collecting three-day food records from children who were in middle school and high schools. And I began to see what they were eating for breakfast and what they called breakfast uh, might be a soda and chips and what they called lunch, which might be a slice of pizza and a soda. And I realized that, these children are in school and how are they eating this way? Where are they obtaining this food? And so my next foray after measuring these children was to learn more about the kinds of foods that are being offered in school, because I, like you, remembered schools in a way that was very different from the schools of today. Um, The foods were different, the kinds of offerings, even the lunch periods were different. And what I learned was, we have a very different situation in schools of today with the food landscape. We have a large um, competitive food off- uh, offering uh, in schools. So competitive
1: foods would be foods that, that the USDA. Defines as competing with things like school lunch.
0: That's right. The competitive foods are foods that are sold outside of the school lunch program. And these foods can be sold in vending machines, in school stores, in little trucks, um, can be sold by clubs. So and these foods, there is the freedom to offer um, all kinds of foods um, to to children and youth. And in fact... There has there have been various movements to limit these kinds of foods, and the obstacle is basically uh, the word choice that people believe that our children need to learn to make healthy choices. And the I'm afraid that that very construct has problems because children don't learn to make healthy choices when they have less healthy choices to choose, they choose those. So children learn to make healthy choices when they have healthy choice options. So so we're, I, I learned that there isn't regulation of these kinds of foods and kids are in a hurry. Um, they may not get these kinds of foods at home. They may, they may not. Um, they may not want to stand in the lunch line. They may not want to, you know, they may not have time. They have, they're busy with other clubs. So there are all kinds of obstacles uh, they may prefer those foods. I mean, they are higher in fat and sugar and salt, and you know they're tasty foods. So um, children have all kinds of reasons why they eat those. And the fact is that the diet of the American child is dramatically changing because of the food that's offered in schools. Over one half of the cal- one third to one half of children's calories are consumed in schools, especially schools that offer a school breakfast program. And so we have to see schools as a big player. Parents are a player. Um, kids are making their own decisions. But schools, in, in, at, at the time when kids are in schools, the schools are, are, are a real player in what kids are choosing.
1: So California has been very progressive legislatively in dealing with this issue. And I know you, were, you and your colleagues were very involved in this. What sort of legislation exists in California? regarding school nutrition
0: yeah well in 2005 california became the first state with mandated nutrition uh, guidelines for both foods and beverages sold in schools k through 12. so we were the first state to eliminate sodas at any level um, and sodas were certainly offered in, in most high schools not as many middle schools or elementary schools but that made a tremendous difference in the kinds of beverages sold in the state. The legislation for foods included limits on the fat and the sugar, sugars in foods. And so the candies and the potato chips and corn chips, these kinds of foods were impacted the most. So This passed um, in the middle of the last decade, and it's been increasingly implemented. The legislation rolled in in the next few years, and now schools are, uh, we've been evaluating it, are doing an excellent job of um, providing beverages as mandated by the legislation, and the foods, they're, they're doing a good job, but it is much more difficult to regulate the foods because Industry's been trying to create foods that meet the California standards. Uh, But the school food service needs assistance in trying to read all the labels and figure out which ones meet the guidelines and which ones don't. So in a given product, on a given label, you know, the honey nut granola bar might meet the guidelines, but the blueberry crisp granola bar made by the same company might not. And so it's that kind of thing where we are right now, that it's it's a little difficult. Um, choosing the nutrition standards are difficult. What we had hoped would, would happen was by limiting some of those high-fat, high-sugar foods that we would encourage the sales of foods, snack foods that might be fruits and vegetables and You know, whole grain crackers and cheese and, you know, snack foods that more closely are aligned with the dietary recommendations for children. But in fact, what we found is that we're still um, selling the same kind of offerings, um, the bars and the snack foods, but they're just um, manipulated, the nutrients are manipulated to meet the guidelines. So they're a little bit more nutritious, but under no pretense what I call them now healthy foods that we're serving children. They're just less egregious in how much sugar and fat they they offer. So we're moving in the right direction step by step in California and in other states and communities as well. They're doing similar things.
1: Legislation like this is really groundbreaking because of what it accomplishes in its own right, but of course it opens the door to subsequent legislation that might help create conditions that would get kids to switch from one category to another, not just have a, a little bit healthier bar and things. Now, I've, I've heard from your lecturing that this was not an easily won victory, and there was some surprising opposition from parties that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be opposed to this. Can you explain a little bit about that?
0: Yes. When this was first proposed in 2001, so California has been thinking about uh, trying to improve the foods in the the school landscape and the offerings for children and youth. Um, It was opposed by the school food service, uh, School Nutrition Association in California, because for very good reason, they were concerned about losing the dollars um, from some of the snack foods because they Two, along with the clubs in the schools and the various interest groups within schools, they too sold the same kinds of foods because they wanted to make their share of sales from the soft drinks or the chips and the candies that were being sold. That They've always said, the ones that I've interviewed, the persons in the schools I've interviewed have said, you know, if the um, playing field is level. We're fine if you get rid of certain foods as long as they can't sell it right outside the cafeteria door. So by making the playing field level and removing some of these um, high-fat, high-sugar foods, they they were more comfortable with it. However, they still were curious on how much, nobody seemed to know how much revenue they would lose because they knew there were you know, revenue benefits of selling these foods to children. There are also, you know, revenues from selling the school lunch, but nobody seemed to know what children would do if those foods weren't offered.
1: So if the if the fear was that they would lose money if the Mm -hmm. policies changed. And, boy, that shows how important it is to evaluate the impact of these programs because you don't know until you get in there and do a thorough test of it. And that's exactly what you and your colleagues did. Mm -hmm. So what did you find? Did the food service lose money when this happened?
0: We found we evaluated in depth uh, uh, financial records from uh, 16 schools, and we found that 13 of the schools actually made more money, the school food service, made more money after they quit selling the, the high-fat, high-sugar um, items. And it was a surprise to us as well as the school food service folks because we really didn't know how many children would move from having a snack-like lunch to having a, a lunch sold in the cafeteria. We, we had no idea how, how that would play out. But the school food service worked very hard to make their meals, you know, attractive and to, you know, help with getting the kids in and out in a, you know, time-efficient manner and to make the food appealing because that's all important in the school meals. And, And that's exactly what happened was that they lost money on those chips and sodas and candies and they made more money on the school meals. And it was so wonderful for them to see the numbers and for us to see the numbers to realize that it's this is a win-win to offer healthier foods the kids are eating meals I mean that in itself we we couldn't have anticipated that an increased number of kids actually ate a school meal rather than a combination of snack foods during a school meal time so no matter what the school meal is it is nutritionally better for kids to eat school meals so anything that we can do to limit the amount of snack food replacement of meals for children can really help benefit their health and certainly, you know, can work to prevent the child obesity epidemic.
1: Let me end with the following question. If you think, if you could write the script for what could be done from this point on to make things even better in schools, what would be in that script?
0: Well, I think we've just started as, as you mentioned. So the script for the future would be to work more with the USDA guidance um, to identify the kinds of foods that would be allowable to compete, those competitive foods, to compete with the school meal program. What I'd like to see competing with the school meal program would be sandwiches and vegetable sticks and fruits, and healthy beverages. So we could have vending machines full of these foods so that when a child decided to snack during the mid-morning or during the meal time, that that snack would actually count towards that child's healthy food for the day. Um, So that means giving up a lot of these snack-like foods at schools and we'll run into opposition from those who worry about the kids having choice But I think if we realize that this is an opportunity to actually provide healthy food for optimal learning, and the kids have plenty of hours after school to get their snack foods, that I think if we came to that place together as a society, we could solve chronic risk um, issues. We could certainly solve some real school behavior issues that teachers are, are convinced are related to the kinds of foods kids are snacking on. And we could really be proactive in helping our children right now.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. You've accomplished a tremendous amount in California, and I know it's you and a number of others working on this, but the the science that you bring to it has played a big role and has really set the example for what's happening elsewhere in the country. So I'm very happy you could join us today. Thank you so much.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you, Kelly.
1: So our guest today was Dr. Pat Crawford director of the Atkins Center for Weight and Health and adjunct professor in the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. Please visit our website, www.yaleruddcenter.org, for a list of resources on food and food policy issue, including a list of the other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent visitors who have come to the Rudd Center. Thank you.